Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We started talking about this issue last weekend, and I asked you whether a person who isn't really responsible, doesn't take care of their own health appropriately, or what is deemed to be appropriately, whether such a person should be lower on the health care delivery system, the list of health care, it's been going on for a long time. In the UK, there are policies where if you don't take care of your health, you will not receive primary, immediate health care. And I spoke with a surgeon, a British heart surgeon, on, uh, on air about 15 years ago, and he had a policy which was that if you were smoking and you required open-heart surgery, you had to stop for 90 days. And if you didn't, you wouldn't get surgery. Well, one of his patients died with just a few days to go in that 90-day period. And uh, I asked the surgeon how he felt about it, whether he felt guilty, and he said, absolutely not. There's an an op-ed in the Washington Post. It was the 23rd of August, written by our guest. And the the title of the op-ed is, When Medical Care Must Be Rationed, Should Vaccination Status Count? Let me just read a couple of lines, and then we'll talk to our guest. The beginning of the op-ed, two patients need urgent care. The first was vaccinated against the coronavirus at the earliest opportunity and has complied with advisories on masks and social distancing. The second has been skeptical about COVID-19 from the start, has declined offers to be vaccinated, and even now rejects masks as a violation of personal liberty. Unfortunately, there is room for only one at the hospital. Should vaccination status be considered in deciding who receives care? The question is hypothetical, writes our guest, but it may not be for much longer. Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Professor Daniel Wickler, Mary B. Saltonstall, Professor of Ethics and Population Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He was also the World Health Organization's first staff ethicist. Professor Wickler, thank you for taking time. My pleasure. Um, where do we begin with this? Uh, let me start with this. The question is hypothetical, you write, but it may not yeah, be for much longer. Yeah. yeah it's, not, it's no longer hypothetical. It's no longer hypothetical. Uh, so it's already no. part of triaging? Well, the, the question is, should be part of triaging, but you know, people who are showing up uh, in the hospitals in these places that now have instituted crisis standards of care, and they're definitely having to turn people away. So they have to decide whether the uh, if one patient has refused to be vaccinated, whether that should uh, lower them in the priority list. So they're having to face this already. So as a medical ethicist, how do you view this entire issue? Well, you know, uh, my approach is to um, look at this particular question and ask um, for each answer, yes or no, uh, we should hold this against them or we shouldn't. What is, is there a general principle that we're operating on? And is that principle one that we would defend, you know, across the board? Um, in this case, basically, um, I think there are two possibilities about what the general principle is. I just heard, uh, overheard you speaking about your British surgeon who, um, who required patients, um, to stop smoking for 90 days before they, uh, got heart surgery. I assume that the reason he did that is that um, if he's going to do the heart surgery and they continue to smoke, they're putting the, the uh, success of his operation at risk, 
uh, them putting themselves. That's exactly what he said. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, he didn't. It's not that he wants to punish them. It's that he wants to help them, but he can't help them if they continue to smoke. Right, so that's that's uh, looking toward the future. That, and this this, th- this is not problem. unusual, is it? For this this sort not of policy is not unusual at all. Not at all. You, if, uh, let's suppose an alcoholic has pickled their liver, they need a liver transplant, uh, they get on the waiting list, and now they get the call. Well, of course, the transplant surgeons have many people who desperately need that same liver. They don't come along that often. And if you have a patient who's going to continue to drink, you have to ask the question, uh, are they going to ruin this next one? Because maybe you have somebody else who has really given it up or somebody who never never drank in the first place, and they, they might actually live to a happy old age if they got that liver. So that's perfectly legitimate to ask. But, but in, in my view, what is not legitimate is to say, um, you are a bad boy, and so we're going to punish you. Not, we're not, we're, even if you gave up, even if we were completely convinced that you give up the drinking or whatever, um, that, we're, we're here to serve as your execution, or we're going to uh, try you and find you guilty, and in this case, it's a death sentence. I don't think that's a, a position that uh, doctors should be in, and most doctors, fortunately, don't want to be in it. So I think in this case, too, uh, if someone shows up at the ICU and they're gasping for breath, and uh, they didn't they, they didn't accept a vaccine when it was offered to them on that silver platter. It was free. Well, of course, we can get angry with them. We ought to get angry with them. They were they were, you know, they they weren't they were irresponsible in a way. We call them. Maybe they have some excuse if they got if they couldn't get good information, but um, you know they were at fault. Okay, now the question is: should the should the penalty for doing that be uh, the refusal to uh, put them accept them into the intensive care unit uh, or to give them the same chance to do that along with other patients? No, I don't think so. Um, just as in other areas of medicine, we don't withhold care or, or reduce someone's chances for care simply because they've been, they've, they have erred. What we do, it, we'll, we'll withhold that they, they uh, can't benefit because of their habits, but it, what they've done in the past seems to me ought to be immaterial. Look, um, suppose you go skiing. Yeah. And you, um, you know, you're a daredevil. Now, I, I happen to know somebody who's, who's the head of one of the most renowned health institutes in the world. And he, he loves skiing at Whistler. And, um, he and his, he led his family down the backside where there were all these big signs saying, you know, do not ski here. Well, one of them, one of them almost died, was, was, uh, you know, close to being paraplegic. Fortunately, she survived. Uh, should the surgeons have said when 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 she came in for care, you know, barely in one piece, should they have said, "Did you go down the back way? Didn't you see the signs?" Well, you know, we have a lot of other people here who've been taking cells, and we're going to make sure that they're okay before we're going to look at you. Of course not. You know, the the health system is there for people who are really in trouble. Uh, they go to the doctors to get fixed, and uh, uh, the doctors are not not used to sitting in the in the position of yeah. judges. Do, do, and, Professor Wickler, if I go back to the beginning of our conversation, 
you said it's going on now, right? The triaging, yeah. it's going on. You, you, in, your, in your Washington Post op-ed, you write, the Dallas newspaper reported the Texas Critical Care Guideline Task Force had circulated a memo stating doctors could take vaccination status into account if triage became necessary and assigning yeah. hospital beds. They backed off on that later on in the day, but clearly they were telling doctors, you can take that into consideration. If they're not vaccinated, decide whether you're going to treat them as well as you or as quickly as you treat the vaccinated person. Yeah, now they didn't say why. So the, and it, it's possible that what they meant was that some patients are unvaccinated and that puts their the success of their treatment and, uh, in doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be. Um, but uh, uh, if that's not what it is, then uh, I, I think they, they made a misstep and it's a good thing that they took it back. Let me ask you this. Uh, health networks are informing their staff, and uh, it's, it's happening in Canada, including doctors and nurses, that they must be vaccinated by a certain date. Yeah. If they don't comply, they're going to lose their employment. Is there an yeah. argument to be made that such a dictate, in fact, should be made, uh, should make a person aware vaccine noncompliance may and will result in consequences? Or is that unfair? I don't think it's unfair at all. <laughs> no. Look, uh, uh, people come to the hospital to get well, not to be uh, put at risk because of the uh, the behavior of, of the staff and refusing to to get vaccinated, that's a pretty element. You know, we suppose that a, you had a surgeon who uh, banged on the table and said, "Look, uh, if I show up drunk for surgery, that's my personal matter. I don't want this uh, my organization to mm-hmm. start telling me what to do in my spare time." But you know, we wouldn't listen to that person for a second. And getting vaccinated when you've got a pandemic like this is is uh, elementary now. Some, some physicians may have convinced themselves that it's neither safe nor effective, but look, you know, they're just wrong on this. Um, um, if, they, if they read the best journals, the journals that they ordinarily claim to respect, they would see that really it's not a, a, a debate that has two sides. So they ought to be reading the journals, and if once they, once they read them, they should, they should comply with what they recommend. Sean... Since this uh, skydiver's recurrent topic, skydivers don't get life insurance. Thanks. Great show. Roy at Roy Green Show is the email address. Let me just, uh, before I get back to Professor Wickler, I just want to take 60 seconds or a little less than 60 seconds to just read a few lines from 2017. This is a CNN story. One local health committee in the UK has announced a controversial policy to, quote, support patients whose health is at risk from smoking or being very overweight, end quote. For an indefinite amount of time, it plans to ban access to routine or non-urgent surgery under the National Service Health Service until patients improve their health, quote-unquote. The policy states, claiming that, again, quoting, exceptional clinical circumstances will be taken into account on a case-by-case basis, end quote. The decision comes from the Clinical Commissioning Group for the County of Hertfordshire, which has a population of more than a million people. The time frame for improving health is set at nine months for the obese in particular. Um, Also, what else do they have here? The target for smokers is eight weeks or more without a cigarette with a breath test to prove it. Professor Wickler, what do you say to that? Is that, again, a situation where they're they're taking the health of the patient into positive account? Uh, You know, that's a tough one. What they're trying to do is to get these people to take the the biggest step that they they need to take to become a healthy people. It's uh, I, I don't hear in that, that that they're saying that because these people have sinned, they deserve punishment. They're, they're saying they're saying that uh, we need something that's really going to motivate them. 
Okay, what about the dog? Uh, my, my, my guess is that with the smokers, it might actually work. With the obese, uh, it's uh, very unlikely to work. You but wrote about, I, in, in your op-ed in the, the Washington Post, you wrote about an Alabama doctor who announced that as the 1st of October, he will no longer see unvaccinated patients. Yes. And, uh, and now this doctor said, look, um, um, uh, I, I, if, you de- if you decide you don't want to be vaccinated, um, I will be happy to uh, work with you to send your medical records to another doctor who you've, you've found to take mm-hmm. care of you. So it's not that they're going to be denied care. It's just that they're going to be denied care from this doctor. I thought that was a very good thing to do um, because for the reason that a lot of the people who are vaccine skeptics still say that they trust their individual personal doctor. And so here this doctor is saying, look, um, I am your doctor, and there's no two ways about around this. Um, uh, this is a good thing for you to do. It's essential for you to do. And I'm, I'm so sincere about it, I'm willing to lose you as a patient. Okay. And I hope that that message uh, sing, you know, comes uh, past their defenses and they take it to heart. I would imagine many folks have seen their hydro bills, their electricity bills, their, their gas bills, their gasoline bills, and they've recoiled in absolute horror. So I drive a car, not a truck. It's a pretty big car, about a driver car. And I went to fill it up. And, and I told my next guest last time he was on with us two weeks ago that I was horrified that I ran up to $100 in, in gasoline costs just to fill my, fill my car. And I'd taken it down to fumes just so I could take a look and see what it would run up to. It was 100 bucks. So yesterday I filled the thing up again. And it wasn't quite empty. The... Uh, Readout on the dash said I had about 80 kilometers to go before I pulled over involuntarily. And it was $108 that I ended up paying for gas. And I'm sure this story is repeated time and again across this country. Dan uh, McTague joins us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal Member of Parliament, 18 years. And uh, there are a few people in this country who know more about the price of gasoline and the cost of energy than Mr. McTague. So we go from a hundred bucks and the things on fumes to a, an it's a it's a, almost a ten percent increase, and I still have fifty miles to go before it runs out of gas. And the second fill up, this is happening across the country, isn't it? It very much is, Roy, and it's going to continue to get worse. Uh, your purchasing power, your ability to do what you did a week or a month ago, is going to continuously get eroded as we head to. Uh, well, we've already smashed through. Every province really has seen all-time record uh, price increases, except Saskatchewan, um, and uh, it's not likely to get any better for anyone anytime soon. What's causing it, Dan? A combination of factors uh, on the demand side, of course, uh, a no-brainer. Uh, everyone wants to get back to where we were, um, pent-up demand. But on the supply side, uh, a very disturbing um, you know, event that is... Uh, continuing to unfold uh, despite the warnings by many around the world, including myself, that uh, shutting in oil production, that blocking pipelines, that finding regulations, and then having, uh, you know, UN officials uh, and friends uh, in very high connected places pushing the idea that we can, we should no longer be investing in fossil fuels, things like coal, things like oil, things like natural gas, 
these are chickens that are now coming home to roost, and it means that uh, oil production, uh, all important, is not sufficient to meet this demand, and it is a deliberate policy by governments around the world uh, to try to choke off and strangle uh, the energy sector. Uh, you may be against this kind of stuff, but I think for many people who fell in line and thought this was a great idea, now comes time to pay the piper. If you think it's such a great idea and you thought it was without consequence, get ready. Fasten your seatbelts because uh, you better hold on to your wallets. We have savaged in this country. We have savaged the energy sector for the last six years anyway. We've dumped all over it. I mean, look, uh, you don't have to take my word for it. The, uh, the revenues in that uh, sector uh, have plummeted. There aren't many uh, foreign investors who've come in and said, we want to invest in Canada's future as far as energy is concerned. We've seen a flight of capital. And we've also seen that show up in a way that I think no one can argue against. I can speak to any economist, I don't care who you speak to. For us to be in a situation where energy is this expensive, it's almost as if it's $115, $120 a barrel, the Canadian dollar has not responded as it has in the past to protect us because we're not selling enough resources to places like the United States and around the world. And that means that, uh, uh, for instance, gasoline is about 13 cents a liter cheaper than, uh, more expensive than it ought to be. But it's not just that, Roy. It's that it goes through the economy. Everything we price in this country yep. is based on the strength of the no Canadian question. dollar. So there you go. Well, when you look at the supply chain, because, you know, everything that are, is in your home, everything that you own, has at one time or another been on a truck. So the diesel for those trucks, for the big trucks and all, you know, local trucks as well, just the supply chain, the fuel cost for supply chains has gone up dramatically. So this is going to be passed on to the consumer. And there's, at the end of the day, we talked about this last time you were on, at the end of the day, there's one bill payer. Yep. And it's becoming onerous. You know, I'm just looking at one story here that uh, was in the National Post, just quoting here. Uh, phasing out natural gas generation, this is about Ontario, by 2030 could result in blackouts and hinder electrification, the province's electricity system operator said in a new report. And they go on to state, let me, where is this now? $100 more a month. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This accelerated timeline, the phase-out would cost more than $27 billion. This translates into a 60% or $100 increase on the average monthly residential bill. Does that even take into account what uh, Wynn and McGinty uh, loaded onto, to, onto, the, onto no. the consumer? <laughs> no, but here's the trick. In places like Ontario, in British Columbia, the governments there are working behind the scenes to actually make even more radical uh, caps on greenhouse gas emissions. So they're going to attack natural gas to drive the price up to such an extent that you want to pay for high electricity prices. In the case of British Columbia... Site C has gone from $5 billion to $25 billion, and it's likely to go even higher. So they want to make it so your electrical bills become attractive uh, by taxing and destroying natural gas. The rest of the world wants it. Uh, it doesn't make sense, and it's going to destroy uh, the very essence of what we are as a country. And isn't, Quebec, do, isn't Quebec doing the same thing? Yes, of course it is. No, no LNG. Quebec doesn't have enough uh, electricity, by the way, in the winter to supply itself, much less other jurisdictions. Uh, and make no mistake, anybody who thinks, uh, as our 30 municipal councillors here in Ontario thought, we can just get away, uh, you know, rid ourselves of natural gas plants. This is what's in store. Everybody talks a good game on green, Roy, except that when it comes to actually having to pay for it, when people actually see the bill, they're starting to see the bills for diesel, for uh, natural gas, for their electricity, and, of course, for gasoline. 
You read a lot of people now saying, well, hang on a second here. I didn't sign up for that. Actually, you know what? You voted last election. doesn't matter what party it was that is currently represented in the House of Commons. You actually did vote for higher taxes on yeah. fuel and making life very difficult for yourself. And the taxes are going up. There's in no way, question. There's a timeline. We haven't even started. Wait till he wait till he he increases the HST two percent. It's coming. So, is Canada then captive to international economic forces, or do we have the ability still? Should we choose to engage? Do we have the ability to keep our domestic prices lower and export significant quantities of oil and natural gas to foreign markers, markets likely eager to purchase Canadian energy? I would I would imagine that China would be quite happy. To uh, Roy, there'd be a lineup. Product. But there'd be a lineup. But we've allowed activists, alarmists, and uh, you know, a, 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 a currency in this country, a narrative that says, "No, Canada's bad. Look, we're the coldest nation in the world. We are some of the most inhospitable regions of the world. But we have an abundance of energy. Second and third largest proven reserves in the world, and the world wants it but can't get it because we have." Uh, individuals in this country and politicians who pander to these uh, individuals, many of them, by the way, subsidized by your taxes and mine, going around telling us, tutting us and telling us what we ought and ought not to do. Look, I have a, a, a simple thing. If you think that shutting down the Canadian economy and making life more difficult for people and destroying our social programs in this country is such a great thing, fund yourself. And I mean by charities that actually tra- show some transparency when they come up behind here. But it's it's unfortunate because we've We've given so much away. These, you know, life has been good in Canada. We can lift off the fat. We can cash serb checks. I'm being cynical, of course, but I have to be realistic. This thing is about to get very real, Roy, and uh, you and I and others will be seen as uh, slightly ahead of our own time when we warned this was going to happen over the past couple of years. So I received an email from the Canadian Energy News Network. I'm not quite sure who they are, but, uh, but they send me information on a regular basis. And the, the first line is, as Europe prepares for energy shortages this winter, I don't know if this is true or not, German state authorities have recently launched a campaign uh, yep. to help educate its people on how to survive prolonged power outages. It involves teaching how to cook without electricity. What are you supposed to do, have a campfire? <laughs> you know, there's a picture that's used by Reuters. That's a picture from Keynes from affordable, from affordable Energy, or for Affordable Energy. That's your guy. I actually get be, be getting a little bit of money for that uh, infringement, but here's what they're suggesting: uh, you know, forget uh, the fact that we have pain, we've put ourselves in the situation where we put all our eggs in one renewables basket. We wind doesn't blow, solar doesn't work, uh, and you need more energy. Industries are shutting down, and people are having to face a 13-fold increase just to keep themselves warm in Germany, Belgium, uh, and of course in the UK, which is, uh, I mean, a real mess. But this is what's coming to Canada. This is what's coming to the rest of the world. We have energy starvation leading to absolute energy poverty. And I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I know in cold winters, when you don't have heat, you wind up with a lot of people in a very, very difficult situation. Dan, about eight or ten years ago, I decided I would do a lot of research on the energy situation, excuse me, the energy reality in England. Mm. And it was it was very frightening what I read. And one of the things that has stayed with me is that many British seniors who are not well off ride the buses all day, every day in the winter, because that's the only way they can stay warm. It's unfortunate that a country like Britain that needs desperately needs uh, natural gas is willing to go and bend a knee to Russia to get it, has just this week rejected the idea of expansion of natural gas in the North Sea, which it shares in common uh, with Norway. It is incredibly naive and disconnected 
that you have elitists going around dictating to hardworking people how they're going to manage their lives because some people believe that the world is coming to an end in 10 years. This is absolute madness. I think it's going to mean, uh, lead to Bojo's exit. And here's the irony. In three to four weeks, you're going to hear a lot about COP26 and Glasgow uh, and, and how many 30,000 planes are going to be coming in there uh, laden with people to lecture usual, the rest of the world. The usual thing. Against, against the backdrop of a country that's literally on its knees because it's followed this woke policy, this yeah. dangerous green climate policy, which has no basis in reality and is hurting people from around the world. Dan, Joe is calling us from northern Alberta. Joe, go ahead with a question for Mr. McTagg. Hi, Dan. Hi, Roy. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you doing, Joe? Hey, Joe. Good, good. Uh, truck driver from Alberta here. I haul oil for a living. Uh, quick question. I've got lots of friends that I communicate with regularly from the city. In their opinion, um, the direction of the oil patch has nothing to do, the direction or operation of the oil patch has nothing to do with the direction of the country at an at a economical level. I've tried to prove over and over again to them that Canada's answers, a lot of the questions Canada has as far as our climate and, and energy moving forward goes, what could I say to them to, to prove or what would be one stat I could point them to that would show that when energy industry does well in Canada, Canada does well on the world stage? Uh, Roy, excellent question. Uh, how about 25 to 30 billion net dollars in the pockets of every federal, provincial, and municipal government? And when you don't sell enough oil, as is the case today when the United States is desperate for more oil, by the way, Roy, they were for 13 million barrels production a day. They're down to about 11.3 million, so they're short. Uh, it hurts the Canadian dollar. So even if you're not involved with oil, uh, the fact is our purchasing power, Joe, is out the window. Uh, so our definitely... Okay, Joe, I appreciate the call. Got to move along because we have little time. Uh, Robert in Thornhill, Ontario. Go ahead, Robert. Oh, hi. Um, my question is, uh, do we need the energy's uh, pipeline? Uh, yes, and uh, more so if you now figure that the federal government's really on its last line of defense it's had to go use a treaty to stop michigan from shutting down line five which is about 50 percent of all the energy needs we have for the province of ontario everything from the jet fuel to our propane uh to our uh, most of our gasoline if uh, that ever does get shut down uh we're we're done so it's time for the federal government not so much energy east but to talk to and i mentioned this morning in a tweet go to tc mainline the trans canada mainline which has supplied us natural gas for years Convert that back to oil so that at least we have, and it's an existing pipeline, get it at least to Ontario. We'll settle uh, the problem with Quebec later if they can go the way they want in terms of energy. Is anybody in this country, any province in this country, uh, safe from these rapid increases in energy costs? None at all. And it uh, all of us share in the weakness of the Canadian dollar, which is driving up the price of everything in ways that we can't possibly imagine. Uh, I think we're going to be looking at, uh, if we go to $100 oil, I think that's inevitable. Look for an average increase right across the country, Roy, of about $0.25 cents a litre. Uh, if we go to $200, uh, you know, sky's the limit. Uh, we could we could see prices, uh, you know, well over two and a half, uh, maybe two and three quarter uh, a litre. And that isn't just, obviously, gasoline. It's also diesel, and it would bring our economy really to okay, a we have a we have a minute here. Add to all of this, to this equation, Dan. Major corporations, including oil companies, are stating they are on board with going electric and achieving emissions goals set by the governments for 2030 and 2050. Companies don't care. They're going to pass on whatever it costs to consumers. 
um, they're not, they don't have our backs, but we can do a little bit more to make sure that they don't hurt us. And that's to make sure that uh, we start talking to the Mark Carneys of this world about their, uh, you know, their, their harebrained plan to shut down investments in oil and natural gas at a time when the world needs more, not less. And we'll do so for the next, uh, you know, for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, net zero electrification, it's a pipe dream and it's a very dangerous one. Canadians have to get real if they want to continue maintaining their standard of living, Roy. Okay, just a few seconds I have left. Do you find you get a lot of support for your positions? Or are I do people now. challenging you? No, I do now. Uh, it's The challenges are over. People didn't believe it. When it was 70 cents for a litre of gasoline, no one cared. It's a buck forty-five now here in Ontario. We're getting a few more converts, and uh, I think it's a, going to become the major discussion. Yeah. Energy uh, think about, think about the people who are filling up in Vancouver. Buck sixty-five. Yeah, uh, yeah, they will, and, and it's going to become it's going to become a lot worse for them when Horgan brings in the hard cap on uh, on, on GHG and drives the cost of uh, natural gas to such a point that uh, no one's going to want to live in Vancouver, much less the rest of British Columbia. Well, I don't know about that. Living in Vancouver sounds pretty good to me. I read a story in the Winnipeg Free Press, which was uh, centered on individuals in the Winnipeg area who had made decisions concerning being vaccinated. Uh, and one of, the, uh, one of the people who was featured was Howie Eugenio. And Mr. Eugenio is a personal trainer and massage therapist in Winnipeg. And his uh, website, which I found, is uh, Find Your Balance. There's also contact information for Mr. Eugenio, which we will get into in just a moment. I'm just trying to get this computer to... Just agree with me. It's done really well so far today. It hasn't decided to throw any spitballs my way until now. Anyway, uh, we've been able to get it to work. Howie, thank you very much for coming to the program. How are you? Thanks. I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Now, in the, in the, in the story in the, in the Winnipeg Free Press that I read about you, and I want to talk to you about vaccination and the decisions you made and how you made them, you were initially hesitant to be vaccinated. Tell us why. Well, obviously, it's something new, um, something that I kind of wanted to wait on and just to see how things played out. Like for me, personally, I rarely get sick. You know, I'm someone who rarely gets the flu shot. So I kind of have this trust in, in my body and I feel like I can fight things on their own. So I just want to see how things played out. And you wanted... If I understand correctly, you wanted governments, particularly the Manitoba provincial government, because it's provincial governments that deliver health care, of course, you wanted the government to encourage personal health responsibility out of the gate. That had to be a serious component part of their messaging concerning uh, COVID and vaccination, yes? Correct. Well, I was looking at it. Would you agree that we're calling this a health crisis? Yeah. So if this is a health crisis... To me, it made sense. Should we not teach the people how to be healthy? Yeah, absolutely. Because you look at COVID and all the people who are suffering the most, you know, they have underlying conditions, things like diabetes, obesity, heart disease. These are all lifestyle-related issues. And to me, it makes sense. Teach the people about their lifestyles and how to change. And then maybe that's one way to combat COVID. And that is something that we have gotten away from, isn't it? We have, as a society, gotten away from really focusing on our own health and taking, I don't want to be um, picking on people here, but taking responsibility for maximizing our personal health. seems like we've gotten away from that in the, in the chase of convenience. 
Mm-hmm. 100%. And, you know, this is nothing to knock against the, the medical field. We've done amazing things. But part of that convenience is I think people can either they realize that we can just rely on the medical system, we can just take a pill, and now I don't have to do the work. No, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Yeah. You you had concerns about the government's intentions behind vaccine promotion. What were they? What were those concerns? Well, as I was watching things play out, you know, things started to roll out. So, for example, the lottery here in Manitoba, they came up with the idea that, well, if you get vaccinated, we're going to put your name in the lottery and you have a chance to win $100,000. And to me, the messaging just doesn't sound right. It's almost like you're bribing people. You're trying to, why do you have to pay people to to get them to get the vaccine? You know, could we not instead spend that 100000 towards collecting data, figuring out which population is the most hesitant, and then sending people to educate them or have discussions with them and help, help ease some of those Yeah. And as you were having these thoughts, you still hadn't been vaccinated yet, but you also spoke then with your fellow employees and others in your peer group about the vaccination issue. And that's where you, if I recall, if I'm reading this correctly, that is where you personally encountered this great divide between, that does exist, between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Yeah, you just kind of look around, see what's being said on social media, talking to people, what they're going through with their friends, and it's people are losing friendships over this, you know? You, mm-hmm. Just because someone's unvaccinated or whatever their choice is, they just, it just boggles the mind how crazy of a divide this is all causing. And, and you, um, so let me, before I ask you that question, what caused you then to make the decision? What created the impetus? For you to go and be vaccinated, what, what what was the determinant? Well, there's a number of reasons, and they all kind of led to me to get to this point. Some of those measures had to do with the restrictions. You know, I have to be now vaccinated for work. But if I don't want to do that, sure, I can get tested every week. So there's that. Now... My daughter, three-year-old daughter, we're putting her in preschool. Now the school comes out saying, you can't go inside. You have to be vaccinated. So here's someone, you know, she hasn't seen much kids because of all the lockdowns, and now I have to bring her to school and just stand at the door and say, okay, bye, have a good first day. And, and then there's also the issue, like, basketball is one of the, the big things in my life where I – use that for my physical and my mental health. And now the gym is telling me a negative test isn't good. You have to be fully vaccinated. So all these things were starting to add up and take away from, you know, what I wanted to do. And I could just stand back and, you know, stand up against the vaccine. No, I don't want to get it. I can fight all these places, but that's not where I wanted to spend my energy. And that's not why I got into this fight in the first place. That's not why I took my stance. And you support both sides. You see both sides of this issue, don't you? Well, we have to. If 
if I want the other side to understand my side, then it's vice versa. I got to do the same for them, right? Yeah, yeah. So has your has your own view then changed? I mean, have you evolved to the point where you're saying uh, all these considerations that you just expressed, and they're valid, of course. Uh, but you've got have you gotten to the point where you believe that your vaccination was just the right thing for you to do personally? I feel like it's it's the right thing that I had to do in the situation that I was in. Yeah. Because let's say I took some flack for things I said on, on social media and I was just trying to spread a message about this conversation I have with my coworkers. It was very positive. We were able to sit down and talk to each other and, you know, understand each other. And that just kind of helps ease some of my resistance. And the only negative thing that I see that I put in that post was I said I was unvaccinated. So you try and talk to some people, and once they hear that, they slap the label on you. You're just an anti-vaxxer. You don't have anything good to say. So it's clear that my message wasn't getting across simply because I wasn't vaccinated and people weren't taking the time to listen. So getting the vaccine... I feel like it gave me a voice because now how can you label me as an anti-vaxxer when I have the vaccine, right? Yeah. I I respect you uh, a great deal because you have thought your way and questioned your way through this whole process and you've done what you uh, understand to be the correct thing for you uh, given the circumstances that you're facing and you're not condemning anybody. You've taken a very, um, I think, a very thoughtful approach to this whole idea about vaccination. I do appreciate the opportunity to uh, have spoken with you. For for our listeners in, in the Winnipeg area, in Manitoba, and you're a registered massage therapist if and personal trainer, if they would like to engage your services, where can they find information about you? Uh, you can find me, Instagram is usually the place I'm on the most, so it's at howie.rmt also you could do a google search i got my website up there for massage therapy and yeah those are the best places yeah find your balance is, is the website so it's uh at howie rmt on instagram yes howie.rmt i'm sorry howie.rmt what am i doing here we started talking about this issue last weekend and i asked you whether a person who isn't really responsible, doesn't take care of their own health appropriately, or what is deemed to be appropriately, whether such a person should be lower on the health care delivery system, the list of health care. It's been going on for a long time. In the UK, there are policies where if you don't take care of your health, you will not receive primary, immediate health care. And I spoke with a surgeon a British heart surgeon on, uh, on air about 15 years ago, and he had a policy which was that if you were smoking and you required open-heart surgery, you had to stop for 90 days. And if you didn't, you wouldn't get surgery. Well, one of his patients died with just a few days to go in that 90-day period. And uh, I asked the surgeon how he felt about it, whether he felt guilty, and he said, absolutely not. There's an, art, an op-ed in the Washington Post. It was the 23rd of August, written by our guest, 
And the uh, the title of the op-ed is, When Medical Care Must Be Rationed, Should Vaccination Status Count? Let me just read a couple of lines and then we'll talk to our guest. The beginning of the op-ed, two patients need urgent care. The first was vaccinated against the coronavirus at the earliest opportunity and has complied with advisories on masks and social distancing. The second has been skeptical about COVID-19 from the start, has declined offers to be vaccinated, and even now rejects masks as a violation of personal liberty. Unfortunately, there is room for only one at the hospital. Should vaccination status be considered in deciding who receives care? The question is hypothetical, writes our guest, but it may not be for much longer. Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Professor Daniel Wickler, Mary B. Saltonstall, Professor of Ethics and Population Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He was also the World Health Organization's first staff ethicist. Professor Wickler, thank you for taking time. My pleasure. Um, Where do we begin with this? Uh, Let me start with this. The question is hypothetical, you write, but it may not be for much longer. Yeah. It's no longer hypothetical. It's no longer hypothetical. Uh, So it's already part of triaging? Well, the the question is, should be part of triaging, but, you know, people who are showing up uh, in the hospitals in these places that now have instituted crisis standards of care, and they're definitely having to turn people away. So they have to decide whether the, uh, if one patient has refused to be vaccinated, whether that should uh, lower them in the priority list. So they're having to face this already. So as a medical ethicist, how do you view this entire issue? Well, you know, uh, my approach is to um, look at this particular question and ask um, for each answer, yes or no, uh, we should hold this against them or we shouldn't. What is, is there a general principle that we're operating on, and is that principle one that we would defend, you know, across the board? Um, in this case, basically, um, I think there are two possibilities about what the general principle is. I just heard, uh, overheard you speaking about your British surgeon who, um, who required patients um, to stop smoking for 90 days before they uh, got heart surgery. I assume that the reason he did that is that um, if he's going to do the heart surgery and they continue to smoke, they're putting the, the uh, success of his operation at risk, uh, them putting himself That's at exactly risk. what he said, yes. Yeah, so it, it, he didn't, it's not that he wants to punish them. It's that he wants to help them, but he can't help them if they continue to smoke. Right, so that's, that's uh, looking toward the future. And this th- this is not problem. unusual, is it? For this, this sort of not policy is not unusual at not all. Normal. Not at all. You, if, uh, let's suppose an alcoholic has pickled their liver, they need a liver transplant, uh, they get on the waiting list, and now they get the call. Well, of course, the transplant surgeons have many people who desperately need that same liver. They don't come along that often. And if you have a patient who's going to continue to drink, you have to ask the question, uh, are they going to ruin this next one? Because maybe you have somebody else who has really given it up or somebody who never never drank in the first place, and they, they might actually live to a happy old age if they got that liver. So that's perfectly legitimate to ask. But but in in my view, what is not legitimate is to say, um, you are a bad boy, and so we're going to punish you. Even if you gave up, even if we were completely convinced that you give up the drinking or whatever, um, we're we're here to serve as your executioner. We're going to uh, try you and find you guilty. And in this case, it's a death sentence. I don't think that's a, a position that uh, doctors should be in, and most doctors, fortunately, just, uh, uh, 
don't want to be in it. So I think in this case, too, uh, if someone shows up at the ICU and they're gasping for breath and uh, they didn't they, they didn't accept a vaccine when it was offered to them on a silver platter, it was free. Well, of course, we can get angry with them. We ought to get angry with them. They were they were. You know they they weren't they were irresponsible in a way. We call them. Maybe they have some excuse if they got they couldn't get good information. But um, you know they were at fault. Okay. Now the question is: Should the should the penalty for doing that be uh, the refusal to uh, put them accept them into the intensive care unit uh, or to give them the same chance to do that along with other patients? No, I don't think so. Um, just as in other areas of medicine, we don't withhold care or, or reduce someone's chances for care simply because they've been, they've, they have erred. What we do, it will withhold that they, they uh, can't benefit because of their habits, but it, what they've done in the past seems to me ought to be immaterial. Look, um, suppose you go skiing. Yeah. And you, um, you know, you're a daredevil. Now, I, I happen to know somebody who's, who's the head of one of the most renowned health institutes in the world. And he, he loves skiing at Whistler. And, um, he and his, he led his family down the backside where there were all these big signs saying, you know, do not ski here. Well, one of them, one of them almost died, was, was, uh, you know, close to being paraplegic. Fortunately, she survived. Uh, should the surgeons have said when 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 she came in for care, you know, barely in one piece? Should they have said, "Did you go down the back way? Didn't you see the signs?" Well, you know, we have a lot of other people here who've been taking cells, and we're going to make sure that they're okay before we're going to look at you. Of course not. You know, the the health system is there for people who are really in trouble. Uh, they go to the doctors to get fixed, and uh, uh, the doctors are not not used to sitting in the in the position of yeah. judges. Do, do, and, Professor and, Wickler, if I go back to the beginning of our conversation, uh, you said it's going on now, right? The triaging, yeah. it's going on. You, you, in, your, in your Washington yeah. Post op-ed, you write, a Dallas newspaper reported the Texas Critical Care Guideline Task Force had circulated a memo stating doctors could take vaccination status into account if triage became necessary and assigning yeah. hospital beds. They backed off on that later on in the day, but clearly they were telling doctors, you can take that into consideration. If they're not vaccinated, decide whether you're going to treat them as well as you or as quickly as you treat the vaccinated person. Yeah, now they didn't say why. So the, and it, it's possible that what they meant was that some patients are unvaccinated and that puts their the success of their treatment and uh, in doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be. Um, but uh, uh, if that's not what it is, then uh, I, I think they, they made a misstep, and it's a good thing that they took it back. Let me ask you this. Uh, health networks are informing their staff, and uh, it's, it's happening in Canada, including doctors and nurses, that they must be vaccinated by a certain date. Yeah. If they don't comply, they're going to lose their employment. Is there an yeah. argument to be made that such a dictate, in fact, should be made uh, should make a person aware vaccine non-compliance may and will result in consequences, or is that unfair? I don't think it's unfair at all. <laughs> no, look, uh, uh, people come to the hospital to get well, not to be uh, put at risk because of the uh, the behavior of, of the staff and refusing to to get vaccinated. That's a pretty element. You know, we suppose that uh, you had a surgeon who banged on the table and said, look, uh, if I show up drunk for surgery, that's my personal matter. I don't want this uh, my organization to start mm-hmm. telling me what to do in my spare time. 
that you know we wouldn't listen to that person for a second. And getting vaccinated when you've got a pandemic like this is is uh, elementary. Now, some some physicians may have convinced themselves that it's neither safe nor effective. But look, you know they're just wrong on this. Um, um, if they if they read the best journals, the journals that they ordinarily claim to respect, they would see that really it's not a, a, a debate that has two sides. So they ought to be reading the journals, and if once they once they read them, they should they should comply with what they recommend. Sean sends this uh, skydivers recurrent topic: skydivers don't get life insurance. Thanks, great show. Roy at Roy Green Show is the email address. Let me just, uh, before I get back to Professor Wickler, I just want to take 60 seconds or a little less than 60 seconds to just read a few lines from 2017. This is a CNN story. One local health committee in the UK has announced a controversial policy to, quote, support patients whose health is at risk from smoking or being very overweight, end quote. For an indefinite amount of time, it plans to ban access to routine or non-urgent surgery under the National Service Health Service until patients improve their health, quote, end quote, The policy states claiming that, again, quoting, exceptional clinical circumstances will be taken into account on a case-by-case basis, end quote. The decision comes from the Clinical Commissioning Group for the County of Hertfordshire, which has a population of more than a million people. The time frame for improving health is set at nine months for the obese in particular. Um, Also, what else do they have here? The target for smokers is eight weeks or more without a cigarette with a breath test to prove it. Professor Wickler, what do you say to that? Is that, again, a situation where they're, they're taking the health of the patient into positive account? Uh, you know, this is a, that's a tough one. What, they, what they're trying to do is to get these people to take the, the biggest step that they, they need to take to become a healthy people. It's, uh, I, I don't hear in that that they're saying that because these people have sinned, they deserve punishment. They're, they're, saying, they're saying that uh, we need something that's really going to motivate them. Okay. What about the dog? Uh, my, my my guess is that with the smokers, it might actually work. With the obese, uh, it's uh, very unlikely to work. You but wrote about in, in in your op-ed in the, the Washington Post. You wrote about an Alabama doctor who announced that as the first of October, he will no longer see unvaccinated patients. Yes, and uh, and now this doctor said, "Look, um, um, uh, I, I if you did, if you decide you don't want to be vaccinated." Um, I will be happy to uh, work with you to send your medical records to another doctor who you've, you've found to take mm-hmm. care of you. So it's not that they're going to be denied care. It's just that they're going to be denied care from this doctor. I thought that was a very good thing to do um, because for the reason that a lot of the people who are vaccine skeptics still say that they trust their individual personal doctor. And so here this doctor is saying, look, um, I am your and there's no two ways about around this. Um, uh, this is a good thing for you to do. It's essential for you to do. And I'm I'm so sincere about it. I'm willing to lose you as a patient. Okay. And I hope that that message uh, you know comes uh, past their defenses and they take it hard. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.